Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites, the official podcast of Dr. Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc. On every episode, I talk with health and wellness experts from all over the world, such as doctors, chefs, dietitians, coaches, and many more. And I sit down with them and have casual conversations about plant-based lifestyle, how to elevate our emotional resilience, and what it really means to thrive. And I bring all of this to you. So let's get to this week's episode. So how did you from there, you know, get into uh, your medical training and then you ended up doing a lot of research and, you know, being presently, you know, where you are now? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, so I thought I would hate research, <laughs> which is funny because <laughs> I do a lot of it. Um, but I thought I would hate research, but I got told by my undergrad, um, pre-med mentor that, oh, you know, you're coming from a, you know, a school that is not competitive to get people into medical school. And, um, and you have not, you know, honed this persona that is competitive to get into medical school. And at the time there was nothing called culinary medicine so, you know, they're like, no one wants to hear about your cooking. <laughs> you need to do something. <laughs> that, yeah. Which is the only bad advice I ever got from that mentor was that, Aww. quote, no one wants to hear about your cooking. But um, I Put your knives away. Yeah. <laughs> no one so wants I to ignored that. it. So that was the one thing I ignored, he told me. But um, uh, so he said, you know, you really should do some research. And so I applied for a couple, you know, over a two or three year period of time in undergrad, applied for a series of, you know, small research grants for trainees and, you know, got my feet wet in research. And I loved it. I thought it was great. I really loved the, you know, having a puzzle, trying to find not just the a solution, but, you know, any, you know, thinking up thought questions and trying to find a process to even get an answer to those questions and trying to be open-minded about what those answers might be. And so that planted the seed for wanting to do research. Um, that was research in genetics. It had nothing to do with what I do research in now, but it did make me think about as I got ready to then, you know, later apply to medical school, you know, well, what did I want to do? Did I want to be, you know, a hundred percent full-time clinician or did I want to do some additional training like a master's program or a, a PhD program? And I was pretty set on, you know, that I had no intention of combining cooking and medicine because I, mm -hmm. again, naively thought, oh, in all these nutrition papers and, you know, health papers and lifestyle papers that I'm reading, it's pretty clear that 80% of the common chronic diseases that we face in the U.S. are due to lifestyle factors and could be prevented or, mm -hmm. you know, largely reversed or at least minimized. Yeah, by making... everyone knows that. <laughs> exactly. It was like, it's so clear in these papers. <laughs> everyone must know that. I don't want to be, you know, just doing the same old thing that everyone else is doing. I want to, I, I really like figuring out that puzzle, right? I wanted to approach a problem that hadn't been solved and, and work on that. And so I thought, hmm, what can I do? Well, social determinants of health, you know, growing up very poor myself and not having regular access to healthcare was very important to me. And I thought, well, if I can figure out this path into healthcare, maybe I can use some of the struggles that I went through to help other people you know, improve their health and have access to healthcare. So I thought maybe I'll do an MD, uh, MPH. And when I go to med medical school, 
And then on the other hand, I really love the genetics research that I did. So I thought my other option that I was struggling between was an MD, PhD in genetics. So um, cooking, not on the radar. I thought that's something <laughs> for this, you know, this chapter of my life. When I get to medical school, that's over and I'll move on. So I uh, applied for programs. And um, again, I said I didn't listen to my mentor. So I wrote my entire personal statement about cooking, <laughs> 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 Which, um, you know, was actually it got me a ton of interviews because no one had ever heard of that before. And no one wrote their, you know, I did not have the savvy to have this as you know, this, yeah. this plot or this, you know, well thought out plan. But, um, you know, I wrote about cooking and, and health and whatnot. So um, it, I guess it must have grabbed people's attention. So, um, so I got interviews and ended up somehow after, you know, being told as a kid, I would never become a doctor getting into Harvard Medical School. And so I went to Harvard Medical School, um, which is insane. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I still mm-hmm. cannot believe that I Yeah, went. insane in itself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it was after I got there, really, um, you know, still undecided whether to do that master's or the PhD along with my medical training um, that, you know, we got told, oh, you get to do this new curriculum. You know, everything is integrated. You know, we think it's really great. And, you know, we'll have a few students get together with the dean to give feedback uh, a few weeks in. And so I got picked as one of those students and I go to this meeting and, you know, just giving my honest feedback, very genuine saying, oh, it's great. I'm so thrilled to be here. And, um, you know, learning so much. The only thing I wonder is, you know, at what point in the curriculum do we learn about lifestyle as prevention and treatment of disease? And mm-hmm. I assume it's coming, but we're only three weeks in. And, 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 as a huge shock to me, he got very upset at uh, the the time and slammed his hands down on the, on the table and said, if people didn't get sick, you wouldn't have a job. I don't want to hear anything about it. And he kicked me out of the meeting. He thought I was trying to be, I don't know, like I was trying to make him mad, you know? And um, I was shocked, but also thinking, Oh, wow, I guess my preconceived notion of everyone knowing this stuff might not be true because I don't think they're <laughs> going to teach me this in medical school. <laughs> um, oh, man. Another naysayer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so it was, uh, yeah, then I, I really was struggling with, besides, you know, feeling like an outsider, feeling like I probably didn't belong because, you know, I didn't really feel like many people were like me in, in medical school at the time and especially not at Harvard and came with all my you know, baggage of being a poor person from the Midwest and uh, not mm-hmm. having anyone in my family go to college. Then, uh, you know, I'm having those feelings. I had my first year of college in my psychology program. Like, maybe this is not a great fit for me, but, you know, I'm not going to let them dissuade me. I'm going yeah, to stick yeah, it out. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to see if there's any other people that agree with me, you know, try and find my people. And so... Luckily, I found, uh, you know, a handful of people who, you know, um, many of them I'm still close to today that that did agree with me and did think, you know, nutrition and, and whatnot was important as uh, part of medical care. And uh, I think that, you know, kept me strong <laughs> throughout and and uh, and whatnot. And actually, at that point, met David Eisenberg, who, you know, was uh, head of the Osher Center, which was an integrative medicine center at Harvard. Um, now that's, you know, kind of dissolved. And I think he's at the Harvard School of Public Health, mm-hmm. uh, focusing on culinary medicine work. And, uh, you know, we met in an integrative medicine meeting back in 2006, I think. And he was just asking, you know, the first year students who were interested in integrative medicine to go around the room and say a little bit about why they were there. And I, you know, I said, oh, I'm really interested in integrative medicine, but also in how you combine, um, you know, food and health, because 
MHFF—and I saw this was really useful when I had no medical training for people that I <laughs> taught cooking mm-hmm. classes to, and I'd love to figure out how to combine them. And I guess, unbeknownst to me, he had been working on uh, getting together with the uh, Culinary Institute of America in in uh, St. Uh, St. Helena, Helena. Yeah, yeah, California, getting together the first culinary medicine continuing medical education conference called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I started working with David Eisenberg to, you know, try and get that launched and, you know, did some of the materials for the early sessions and presented at a few of the first conferences and, mm. and, and it was before there was even the term culinary medicine. So it was, you know, really just this idea without, without a name. And, you know, it was just super popular from the get go. I mean, there was obviously a hunger yeah. and need for that and people knew it was important, but I, I don't know, I guess in communications, I remember in undergrad uh, and, and gender studies learning about, you know, if there's not a name for something then it's not recognized. And I think we were talking about, you know, much yeah. heavier topics like, you know, gendered violence and things like that. And until there was really names for those things, you know, there's no, people had no recourse and whatnot. So, yeah. you know, this is kind of, you know, not as serious a, a topic or, I mean, maybe it is. I mean, there's, there's, I, you know, 80% I, of our, you know, our healthcare time maybe is being misspent if we're not focusing on lifestyle. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, um, a lot of things are basically, you know, grounded on the same, you know, things except we just have different words of, you know, redressing or reframing, um, you know, how we look at it, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like lifestyle medicine and the pillars that represent it, you know, they're not, you know, uh, they're not brand new concepts, you know, they're very, very, you know, basic lifestyle pillars and, you know, they're just dressed differently, you know? So, but it's funny how you mentioned about the conference. I actually been to that conference before I, um, a few years back, I think around maybe 20, 2011 or 2012. And um, it's where I actually met your, I don't know whether you knew her at the time, but you're now, you know, good colleague and friend, uh, Julia Norgren. And uh, oh, great. yeah, that's where, you know, I actually, you know, met her for the first time. And uh, it's a wonderful conference for mm-hmm. any healthcare providers um, in the audience um, that are looking you know, in real time, live demonstrations combining, you know, um, you know, different topics of chronic disease burden, you know, married with, you know, cooking and culinary experts and, you know, uh, Culinary Institute of America is a very well-known, also renowned, uh, you know, institution as well. And, you know, not a not at a shabby place, you know, <laughs> right next to Napa Valley. So <laughs> in, in a castle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a castle, might I add. <laughs> Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Uh, that That's wonderful. So, um, so now that you've gone through, you know, uh, you know, little bits of where you are, um, you know, take us to how uh, afterwards, you know, you, you, you did, you did a lot of research and then how did you end up, um, you know, uh, teaching, you know, at Stanford? Right. So I, I obviously channeled my love of research into research on, you know, these, these current topics we're talking about, but uh, how I ended up at Stanford was I was finishing my internal medicine residency and, you know, 
continuing in yet another place, realizing that um, there's not a lot of focus on lifestyle and internal medicine generally. But I saw just so many places where it could be so useful of a tool and, you know, kind of like integrated medicine, I thought, um, it, you know, along with what's more typical, you know, internal medicine, I thought, why are we segmenting ourselves in medicine? Why not just say, oh, it would be really great for the types of patients that I see to have all the best tools in my toolbox, all the best evidence-based tools in my toolbox, whether those be, you know, the typical medications and procedures, but also, you know, the being able to teach someone how to cook or at least talk to them about changing their mm -hmm, dietary mm -hmm. behaviors or exercising. So, um, and understanding integrative therapy. So I, um, I knew that I didn't want to just apply for typical internal medicine jobs. And I knew I wanted to get back to California because at this point I was still on the East coast and, um, you know, it's just kind of hard to transition. So I thought, okay, I need to figure out some way to get plugged in again, you know, with my people, um, in the place where I want to be. And so started looking around and found the Stanford prevention research center, um, uh, postdoctoral fellowship in cardiovascular disease prevention, which I applied for and, and ended up getting. And that's what brought me to Stanford. But that's a program that's really for PhDs generally, although they do take a few MDs here and there to, you know, really people that have pretty extensive training mm. and research to you know, get them to a point where they can be at top-notch universities and run their own labs and, and focus mm -hmm, their career mm -hmm. entirely on research. So, it's, you know, I didn't want to necessarily focus my entire career on research, but I knew I wanted to, you know, really take what I had seen in practice in terms of, you know, lifestyle medicine and culinary medicine at this point and, um, and, and what I'd learned working in uh, low-income settings to try and figure out, well, how can we bring these lifestyle treatments and culinary medicine treatments to everybody, not just, you know, someone who can private pay in a clinic and thought, well, the way to that is we need to prove that these things a work, which, you know, mm -hmm. we had a lot of background knowledge that they should work, uh, but that they work in a clinical setting, that they're doable, that people are willing to do them and can do them in the current healthcare constructs and that you can pay for them using the current payment methods that are out there and that it doesn't cost a lot of extra money and it somehow improves health outcomes. So, um, you know, at the time there, you know, there were a lot of gaps in that research and I knew that you need the research first and then you need really compelling personal stories and ways of influencing policy, which, um, we didn't talk about it and I won't go into detail, but I also did a master's in public policy and administration from the yeah, school. Of yeah, sure. <laughs> why not? Why, why not? Um, you know? But I've, yeah, I'd been kind of filtering around, like, how do you make change in this field? And I thought, oh, you know, policy and politics. Yeah. And I realized, oh, that's really hard. <laughs> Just like trying to, uh, you know, change the healthcare system. And so then also figured I'd get this background in research. So I'm really trying to get to a place in my life where I can marry all those things together. But yeah. um, so on the research arm right now, and that brought me to Stanford and also brought me to meeting uh, Dr. and Chef Julia Nordgren, who you mentioned, who's a great friend and um, chef MD colleague who, um, along with a few other um, colleagues at Stanford, including Christopher Gardner, who's a really well-known nutrition mm -hmm. researcher, uh, Maya Adam, who uh, is uh, well-known creating these massive open online courses focusing on nutrition, um, like Stanford Food and Health and whatnot on Coursera, um, and just doing some great multimedia and art around um, teaching things and is a very effective teacher. Uh, and then Tracy Rydell, who ran the nutrition 
Um, and actually, the I guess at the time, ran the curriculum for the first two years of the medical students uh, program at Stanford, but is also very interested in nutrition. So, you know, kind of all of us partnered together to um, talk about this idea of creating a culinary medicine course. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then, um, you know, I kind of took the reins and wrote the curriculum, the majority of the curriculum um, for the course and, and started a um, an elective course where medical students could sign up for the class and they, but it was a quarter long class. So they come once a week for eight weeks and uh, for two hours, they do a little bit of prep work where they'd watch some videos online or, you know, read through a few materials and then they come and we jump right into the kitchen and we would just start cooking, um, you know, the food that was set for the day. And then we would, you know, clean up, sit down around a table, eat together. And then for the last, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of the course, uh, uh, each course session, we would actually do the, you know, how do you integrate this into medical care piece? And so we'd have them, you know, we, Julie and I would practice being um, patients and then we'd have the students practice being the doctors and uh, motivation, doing motivational interviewing and coaching techniques to, you know, elicit from us what our diets were. Um, And we, you know, played the part of people from varying, um, you know, cultural backgrounds and varying ages. Julia does, um, uh, pediatrics, um, and especially lipidology. And then I see adults for the most part. So it was a good, good match across the, the yeah. yeah, age span and, um, you know, answered a lot of their nutrition questions and really, you know, try to get them comfortable thinking about food and giving, um, dietary lifestyle change advice in a clinical setting and troubleshooting how you do that with, you know, limited time and resources and whatnot. So, um, the class was super successful. Uh, we had to keep getting outside funding to, because we had to rent a space to, to use for the kitchen on Stanford campus. But, uh, we ran it for three quarters and, um, you know, students loved it. They, um, I gathered as part of the postdoc research program, I gathered data from the, both the students and the students that wanted to take the course, but couldn't fit. So we, you know, kept them on a waitlist control group. So we have a good comparison mm-hmm. and collected information about, you know, attitudes, behaviors, and knowledge around cooking, talking about cooking um, and talking about diet with patients and personally making healthy changes to their own lives. And there was like a, a less than 0.001 uh, P value, which is a very significant change. So the students in the class uh, were much more effective at, um, you know, doing and talking about those important topics than the students who were similarly interested, but just couldn't get into the class. So, um, yeah, so really wanted to figure out a way, okay, this is great. We're helping 12 people a quarter do this, but you know, it's kind of, it's like that starfish analogy where you know you see like there's a, a tidal wave or something. And there's all those starfish on the beach and you, uh-huh. know, you see someone walking and throwing them all back in one at a time. And, you know, someone walks up and says, yeah, oh, yeah. You, everyone's heard the story. But anyway, so, um, yeah, so we thought we were making a difference to each person and that they may, you know, influence a thousand people or more than that over their clinical right. careers, but it was still a drop in the bucket. So we wanted to figure out how to expand it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, um, oh man, there, there's a lot of pieces to this and, um, you know, you're, you're not only, you know, doing something within a medical school, you know, institution, which is not, a, not a common, you know, as I've talked a lot, um, uh, through, through these episodes with, uh, many other doctors, um, and healthcare professionals that, you know, nutrition wasn't part of the basic curriculum and kind of similar to how, 
you know, your uh, one of your administrators, you know, slapping their hands on, you know, the table and saying, you know, you know, what, you know, what lifestyle, you know, we're, we're only here to see sick people. And, you know, we just weren't really trained for it. And to be able to insert, you know, marrying, you know, cooking and medicine and how that influences not only uh, patient care, but also on a grander scale, um, you know, healthcare is very, very important. And I can only imagine how uh, challenging it must have been, you know, to kind of get that, you know, not only approve and on board, but to be able to create a curriculum for medical students and figuring out, you know, what we can kind of distill in a concise manner uh, for them to absorb the material and then repeatedly do it themselves. And then, um, you know, like you said, create a ripple effect, you know, to be able to, you know, teach maybe other healthcare, you know, uh, professionals and, you know, patients alike. Like I said, you know, they are ultimately, a, you know, going to be community leaders, you know, not just, you know, doctors and physicians. So absolutely. Um, I would love to kind of transitioning gears. And, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, your story and how you got here and all that stuff. Um, I, I would love to know, um, you know, when when you've been teaching not just healthcare professionals, but also patients alike. Um, you know, just going back to the basics, what are the most common uh, reasons why people nowadays are cooking less in the kitchen, you know, and what were, what did you see and observe as main barriers? And, you know, what has the research, you know, shown um, in these particular areas? Sure. So there, there are a lot of reasons why people are cooking less, but I'd say the ones that come up the most often, the biggest barriers are, um, you know, we're in a generation of people who didn't necessarily learn from their parents as a given how to cook. So there's just a lot of people who don't know how to cook or even do basic things in the kitchen. That's a huge barrier. Um, and then limited resources. So, you know, just lump financial and time together. It seems like people are often limited in finances or time or both, um, but it really gets in the way of cooking. And then, you know, thirdly, yeah, you know, uh, a lot of competing interests. So, is, and that paired with quick, cheap, accessible, everywhere, uh, generally unhealthy, unfortunately, food. Mm-hmm. It just, mm-hmm. you know, there's just not a lot of incentive to do cooking unless you, you know, learn quick ways to do it that are inexpensive, that, you know, kind of jive with your cultural background and don't feel like they're foreign and, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and fit in your lifestyle. And I, I would say, you know, now that I also work in a veteran population, you know, I also, you know, suddenly have a lot of patients that live by themselves. And so I'd say, you know, kind of a fourth one in there is just people aren't very motivated to cook when it's just for themselves. I mean, right. I think there's really an innate thing, around, you know, to sitting around a table with people and talking and, and it makes that, you know, initial outlay of time to cook some, you know, delicious, nutritious thing worthwhile if there's other people to enjoy it with and, and not so much when there's not. Right, right. There's the social aspect of it. There's the, you know, the whole family dinner. I actually interviewed uh, Julia in season one um, about this concept, about, you know, getting together and uh, what happens when that family dinner table, quote unquote, falls apart. You know, you get, you know, our current age of, you know, smartphones and social media and everyone's constantly distracted, not being together and, um, you know, I also used to work, you know, um, in the VA um, as well. And they are, you know, one of the most, you know, lonely populations. And, you know, and I think that, um, you know, if 
any way we can kind of get people, you know, together, you know, especially, you know, cooking, who's going to say no to that, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to a good meal, uh, with others, you know, I don't think that, that anything tops that. And, um, it's, uh, it, those, these are important, you know, things to kind of, uh, bring together. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. So I uh, I definitely want to close out and uh, and I love hearing about um, how my guests thrive and you know for you you know as you have kind of painted you know your colorful tapestry um, of you know how you got from point A to point B you know how how would you say you practice you know ways to kind of keep you motivated because obviously. You know, we you have told us, you know, you have you know triumphed many, many different obstacles and many naysayers, right? So how have you practiced for yourself um, you know, to get over those obstacles? And then, you know, three tips, and I, I like to call it my three to thrive, you know, three tips in terms of, you know, the main barriers that you mentioned, you know, the time and the convenience and um, you know, all, you know, all the different barriers you were mentioning before, you know, quick tips in terms of how to get people, you know, started, um, in terms of getting back into the kitchen. So in terms of how I thrive myself, so, you know, I guess, you know, first, which was a big thing and, you know, a little less often do I use this now, but it's still, you know, pretty important piece of who I am is that I think I realized that if you are seeing, you know, people in a situation that, you know, isn't, helping them to thrive, isn't making them happy. Um, don't do things the same way that they're doing things. And, you know, if you see people, you know, not accomplishing things all around you, then try and find a new way to do things. And sometimes that's really uncomfortable. But I think one really motivating thing to me was just trying to remind myself that, you know, I always have a choice to get out of bed every day. And, you know, I'm, I may not like what's waiting on the other side of, you know, getting out on the left or the right side, but, you know, I still have a choice to do that. And, um, I just trying to, you know, face challenges head on and, and think of them as a puzzle and trying to find a solution instead of thinking of them as something that's insurmountable that you can't, you know, you can't address or, you know, can't, um, you know, get to the other side of. So I think that, you know, just maybe outlook is a big thing for me. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, otherwise in terms of living healthy and trying to, you know, practice what I preach, is really trying to figure out because I don't have a lot of extra time, you know, these healthy things I want to do, whether they be exercise or eating well, mm-hmm. spending time with family, you know, how do you combine them with other things that you have to get done? And so, you know, for us, an example is, you know, we have two big dogs and a toddler and everyone's very energetic. And so um, we will try and make sure that after we have dinner, um, you know, before bedtime, we all go for a walk together and it's very chaotic, <laughs> but it generally happens. And we all get, you know, get at least a you know, mile and a half in uh, walking, doing that. And then, you know, mm-hmm. combined with all of our other things that we do. Um, and then also, you know, just trying to cook and meal prep and shop and do some of those things together. So that it's still, you know, and trying to find ways to make that fun. So it's family time instead of just like another task that is done on your own Mm -hmm, or that you're going to do after you spend time with people. So, um, yeah, so figuring out ways to work things in and then, um, and, you know, I guess 
the next one the gets three, at your the, other question. The three to, yeah. yeah, the three yeah. to thrive um, in terms of the barriers you were mentioning, what are, you know, what you would, you would say your go-to solutions in terms of how to overcome those uh, for people that are listening in to kind of get started? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of addressing all those barriers I mentioned and something I personally do is, you know, I kind of, you know, have the motto, just always make extra. And I don't mean making extra food for food waste sake. I mean, you know, try and think about all the food that you make or even as components instead of recipes and think about, well, you know, what takes a really long time to cook, but I know I should eat more of like whole grains or beans, for example. And so I would never, ever make just enough for one meal of those things because I take, you know, anywhere from 30 or 40 minutes to two hours to cook. And so I make a whole big batch of those things. And this obviously assumes some level of resources. So I have some patients who don't have kitchens, but, you know, assuming, uh, and that's, we, we address that separately, but assuming, you know, you're talking to a crowd with kitchens and trying to make sure you make extra and figure out ways to, you know, store pre-made amounts in reasonable portions in a freezer, um, of whole grains and beans, I try and always have at least a couple of flavorful sauces around um, that are really varied in flavor. So, you know, part of the culinary medicine curriculum, I can mention a little bit more in a bit Mm -hmm. where I try and share in more detail how to do some of these things, um, you know, really highlights using flavors from around the world to make uh, flavorful sauces so that you can dress up you know, uh, especially if you're doing plant-based cooking, you know, any whole grains, any beans, any vegetables, nuts, seeds, whatnot, um, you can kind of have really similar starting point. But if you have a really flavorful sauce that tastes completely different than, you know, flavorful sauce number two, then it's, you could have almost the same thing, but it seems like two totally different dishes. Um, or you use different cooking techniques with those things. And it, seems like a totally different dish, but it's really similar starting points. So trying to figure out how to do a lot with, you know, limited number of things that you can keep, you know, a pantry stocked with those few things that you need to make some staples. Um, and then, you know, pair that with the things that you made ahead and maybe froze and you could really, you know, get out whole grains and beans that you made ahead, you know, one or two sauces that you made for the week. And then if you just keep a, an array of a few fresh fruits and vegetables, around, um, you can toss together a meal much quicker than you could load up a family of people and drive to McDonald's and wait in line and come back and far faster than you could go get a bunch of TV dinners. Because if, if someone's, if anyone's ever tried to, you know, microwave for TV dinners, <laughs> it takes 45 minutes, you know, <laughs> so uh-huh, you can, uh-huh. you can make a healthy meal that is oh, much yeah. more delicious and nutritious. Me- minutes, that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, you can do it in ways that are faster, cheaper, um, you know, easier, uh, if you know how to cook and meal prep, if you don't have cooking skills and you don't ha- know how to do these time management things, you cannot, you, like, you cannot succeed at always having healthy food around the kitchen. So I think it's super important. People learn meal those prep, skills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, addressing the limited resources, all those foods I mentioned can be found really affordably. Uh, cooking at home is much cheaper than eating out, um, for the most part. Um, and, um, you know, just trying to make sure that you have, you know, some healthier go-to like quick grab and go options so that, you know, when you do have really competing interests, like, you know, a softball game to go to, or, you know, you just had a rough day at work and you just want to sit and not do much, then, um, you know, you have something that's kind of already made and ready to go. So you're not so tempted to, you know, go to that fast food place or, you know, get something that's not as good for you Mm -hmm. and heat it up. Yeah. So those are all great. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that. Um, 
I uh, would love to talk about a little bit about the curriculum that you had just produced. Um, what is it? Uh, what is it? And who is it for? This is the culinary medicine curriculum. And uh, I would love to know, you know, um, you know, pretty much the premise of it. And um, how can we best learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for, for giving me the opportunity to, you know, kind of give a plug to it on the program here. So I really uh, hope that people can make use of it. So the, the culinary medicine curriculum is the first comprehensive open source curriculum. So that means open source means free. <laughs> so you can go and download it. Um, you don't need to pay. You don't need to you know, give up your first board or, you know, sell a bunch <laughs> of information to someone. It's really free. Um, and it is download. You can find more information about it on my website, Chef in Medicine, or go straight to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine website, lifestylemedicine.org forward slash culinary dash medicine to learn more and download it. But um, it's really geared toward, you know, if you just plug and play, I took it exactly how it's written. It's it's written to be similar to what we did at Stanford, um, but a little more focused on whole food plant-based cooking, which is, um, you know, the predominant eating pattern that ACLM uh, or the American College of Lifestyle Medicine promotes. So um, it's meant to be put into any health professional training program. So not just medical students, but really any health professionals that would in any way ever discuss nutrition or could benefit from discussing nutrition with patients. Um, It could be put into programs. um, And there's really detailed information so that you don't need to be a chef and doctor to be able to run this. You don't need to be a nutritionist. Um, you know, we recognize that having those combined sets of training is is uncommon, and we don't want to slow mm-hmm. down the expansion of the field. <laughs> right. So there's you know details of how you could um, set that up at any um, you know any institution, and you know what you need in your kitchen, what rules you need to follow, kind of all the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Um, and then it's also super easy to adapt to any other educational environments. There's tips there how to just do like a one-off class. You don't have to have a whole series of them. Um, and if you literally just take out the piece in each session that talks about how to teach patients about this stuff, then it is actually applicable to anyone. So anyone listening doesn't work in healthcare at all. Uh, you're, you're just like a person who goes home and needs to feed their family at the end of the day or feed themselves. Uh, you could go through this, um, and, you know, pairing it with some, uh, explanations of videos you could watch online. You could learn a lot about cooking and health and, and, you know, use it, use it as is. So hopefully people will, uh, download it and use it and then give me feedback and I'm always happy to <laughs> make edits and make it better. So, yeah, no, it's a, it, it's, it, it's like great piece of work and, um, you know, definitely people who listen to this, um, I will include that, um, her website and the curriculum, um, in the show notes, um, at the end of the episode, you guys could just find it there. Uh, thank you, Dr. Michelle Hauser, Chef Dr. Michelle Hauser, good friend. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your time to be able to kind of, you know, just again, you know, kind of uh, colorize, you know, medicine, you know, because sometimes, you know, medicine can be, uh, can be very dry. And, um, and the thing is, is that when you know something as impactful as having the tools and education and information that we could prevent 80% of, you know, a lot of the crying diseases that we face, you and I both know it's like a dub, right? But not everyone knows that. So it's our job to be able to, you know, relay this kind of, um, you know, information to everyone. And I really appreciate and 
um, thank you um, for, you know, doing the work that you do. So, and I hope the naysayers, you know, don't, are not any more naysayers anymore. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for all that you do in culinary medicine. And I hear you just had another paper published. So that's, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, my kudos thank you very you much. <laughs> also spreading the word and doing great work and also for creating this amazing podcast. I mean, what, what a treat for everyone to listen to. So I hope to, you know, to finish making my way through all the other episodes so I can hear (laughs) more great uh, presenters and, and, you know, more pearls from you as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Guys, this has been another episode of Thrive Bites. Um, If you enjoy this, please follow and subscribe and we will be here every week on Wednesdays and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you very much. And thank you, Michelle, again. Hey guys, that was another episode of Thrive Bites. If you like that episode, please subscribe and follow weekly for new episodes. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Hey guys, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to check back to our part one.